We want to take a second to thank you for supporting Womance by listening to our podcast. One great way that you can continue supporting us, including those listens, is hitting subscribe, telling a friend, leaving a review. That stuff all really matters. Sharing it on your personal social media is another great way to spread the word about Womance. And another option for supporting us, if we may be so bold, is to recommend going to our Patreon, where you can donate as little as a dollar a month to help us spread the word of woe. If you want to contribute more than a dollar a month, which obviously no pressure, whatever you've got, we are so appreciative to have, but we have awesome gifts for you. If you want a hand-addressed letter from Morgan and Isabeau, maybe with some special woe stickers, other merch, just uh, visit our Patreon. We are Womance on Patreon, or is it patreon.com forward slash Womance? We would be very proud to call you one of our patrons. Wonus time. Year in review. So exciting. What can we say about 2021? Well, I think we should narrowly tailor our content to the books the books we discussed uh, in 2021. Brilliant suggestion, Morgan. Well done. Uh, the nice thing about our episodes is that I can see the date they were released, and that helps me track the passage of time. Clearly. Uh, So we will be doing a review of all the books we talked about. Well, not all of them, but like the overall like gestalt of the books we talked about in 2021 as we now find ourselves in the earliest days of 2022. Where would you like to begin our year in review? Well, I would like to remind people that we've we've done this once before in uh, March 2020, no less. That was a good time to do it, frankly. Oh, wow. We got in there. We really wanted to look uh, look critically at like what we were reading and compare it against the Ripped Bodice's Racial Diversity and Romance Publishing report, which a lot has changed with that as well. Um, and so we wanted to hold ourselves accountable and we published our numbers as far as authors of color, independent publishing, different kinds of main characters. And a, there was a lot of critique around the Rip Bodice that I think is super fair and like really changed my perspective when I was going to do our year in review because it's like, how can you like determining an author's race can be tricky if they haven't, you know, publicly self-identified, right? And then it's also kind of tricky to identify some characters. But that's something we've always celebrated, right? Like we thought it was weird uh, this past year uh, when we read Katie Roberts's uh, Neon Gods and we were like, why is she pointing out that this like mystical background creature is Latinx like, <laughs> and not doing anything with it, not going anywhere with it? A lot of like, yeah, I think just one of the biggest differences between this conversation that we're going to have and the conversation previously is that we're thinking a lot more expansively. And I hope you are too. If that's the only thing that we can give you in 2022, I think that's a great way to start the new year. Think expansively. 2020, two by two. I don't know why. I thought two by two would sound more expansive <laughs> than other things. <laughs> 
20, 20 don't be two by two. <laughs> All right. Okay, so diving into the amazing data that Morgan collected for us. Morgan, what most surprised you about the data? One of the things that stood out to me is that we did not read any books with a neurodivergent main character this year. And that was something we read a lot of, I think, in past years. Or not a lot of, but it came up more frequently. And another, and I was like, well, maybe it's because we read like a lot of older books. But no, our like uh, mean year was 2021 for published date. Can you believe that? That's also shocking to me. No, that's very shocking to me considering how many historicals stand wide in my memory of last year. <sighs> yeah. Like, and I think we always kind of identify as a podcast that mostly talks about old stuff. But then I looked at another point of the data that was shocking to me. I was like, okay, well, so we're obviously reading a lot of like newer stuff. And then I realized that our average publishing date was 2007, which if you were born in 2007, you would be learning to drive now. So I <laughs> don't know if that's actually like a correct assumption. Like I think we are still reading older romances. Books are getting older and so are we. <laughs> point I'm trying to make. Um, so that was a little surprising. That is surprising. But I also, so whenever I noted that we hadn't read any like neurodivergent main characters, I did notice that like there were quite a few books we read that, you know, if if you, you could identify or identify with that main character as having neurodivergence, but it wasn't something that was like explicitly a part of their character identity and something that the author wanted to make clear in the text. Mm -hmm. And so I was trying to recall, like, were there any big books this year that came out this year that had a neurodivergent main character? Yeah, The Heart Principle was published August 2021. So there were two big ones that came out, and we decided not to do either of those because we did the first in the series of both of these. Yeah, and also both of this, it's like in the same series. And so it's weird that that felt like such a big part of the collective romance, you know, conversation or imagination you know, a year ago, but in actuality, in mainstream publishing, as far as we can see, right, the authors who are doing it are just continuing to do it. What surprised you about the data? I was surprised that we didn't have more indies. Uh, we had seven. I felt like we mm -hmm. did more, uh, which is funny. Mm -hmm. Pleased to see our racial diversity go up. Um, and then the other thing that really surprised me, because Morgan did this great thing where she uh, did the historical versus contemporary and then did setting. And like to see how much is set in England is like, <laughs> like to see it in black and white is honestly really disturbing. Um, and like I know it because like I ingest it and I'm in this space, but like yeah. England is like reign supreme like Gloria Britannia is like ugh. yeah and like a lot of the stuff that happens in the U.S. is happening in New York City um and most of the stuff that takes place in England is taking place at least partially in London um but we did get to go and explore some cool spa places like outer space 
We went to France and Italy with an older romance novel, and we most recently got to go to Nebraska. But I think that's something we should, like, I don't know if it's, oh God, to be honest, that data point feels like the most daunting. Like, let's expand the places we go to when we read romance. Oh my gosh, Cape Town, South Africa came up whenever we read um, Billionaires, Secret Billionaires Kiss by uh, Therese Bahari. Uh, with smart bitches trashy books but like that feels like the most daunting piece of data to address because things taking place in England or New York City specifically in the United States are kind of like what is water like they don't even mention it on the back of the book right you just have like a duke and you can assume but there are dukes in France and there are dukes in Spain as we'll soon yeah uncover that's a space I would like to work ourselves in for 2022 because it is like the two metropoles of New York City and London loom, loom super large. And I think we should reward authors uh, like... Yeah, what a treat it is to have us read. <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> I want to reward you, <laughs> Melissa M. Lopez, for featuring Lincoln, Nebraska. <laughs> Yeah, Uh, even though it's not specifically named Lincoln, Nebraska. It's just Nebraska. I got your context clear. (laughs) We knew. We knew. But yeah, I I think you're right. I think it will be daunting. It isn't on the back of the book. There are a lot of other like context clues. Um, But I think like that's one that I want to think about more consciously. Yeah, and I also want to explore more in – I hesitate. So when I was noting if something was a historical or a contemporary, whenever I encountered like a fantasy or a sci-fi, I wanted to make that, you know, it's not either historical or contemporary. It's historical, contemporary, fantasy, or sci-fi because having something that takes place out of our current like understanding of the world feels like its own special thing. And so that's also an area that I think is much less daunting because I feel like sci-fi and fantasy romance are now – you know, coming to the forefront, Ice Planet Barbarians got a cartoon cover physical publication this year, thanks to TikTok. So um, I think like that kind of stuff is coming to the forefront. I agree. Um, And I'm excited. I want to make a conscious decision to explore those spaces more, (laughs) those outer spaces as the case may be. Mm Mm-hmm for us so aside from the surprising data what book surprised you the most that we read in 2021 strange love is one that i continue to think about and i think about that great conversation that we had with shelf love um and how sexy that book was for an insect alien and like all of the ways that loving and tender touch could happen even with talons claws and what are essentially gills and I remember being so titillated by like the gill touching that like I've like I'm not recovered yet. I'm like this is a book that I perennially think about and recommend. <laughs> so that one stands out to me in terms of both surprise, joy, and like continued thought. A man of taste stands out to me as one that was surprising in all of the ways that it worked. Yeah. Talk about talk about thinking expansively. Um, that book really shows like how wild and wonderful romance can be and like wild and wonderful in a way that still feels comforting and exploratory, you know. Mm-hmm. And then in terms of like not good surprises oh are you are you are you jumping ahead to a biggest no yeah i am 
The other one that I definitely want to highlight as like a total surprise and like continues to like burble up in Romance Landia as like, is this even a romance? Was uh, the marriage pass. And I just like want to remind readers of that book that was entirely told in first person, close, dude. And then the epilogue is told through the female main character's perspective. And it turns out that the happily ever after is essentially the happily ever after of Frozen, that (laughs) your truest love might be your sister. And so I want to remind everyone of that particular verbal about like, is it even a romance? And I was like, I know what? It checked a lot of the boxes and like, talking about speaking expansively, dare we think so expansively that there's not necessarily the HEA you were expecting. But it was certainly an HEA, but it wasn't the one you were expecting. So like, that was definitely a shocker. That was a book that I was like on the edge of my seat the whole time. Everybody loves it when it's Elsa and Anna, but... Turn it into two sisters in Atlanta just trying to get what's theirs. (laughs) Trying to get revenge. And it's like, ooh... Not on my watch. (laughs) That's not a romance. Yeah. What surprised you? What book surprised you most? Um, Venetia surprised me the most for a couple of reasons. Structurally, it was uh, the first romance novel I'd listened as a book on tape that I found so charming as a book on tape. It like breezed by. For whatever reason, I think about one of our earliest precepts and our preceptor had to remind us because we were reading Freud and Freud gets shit on endlessly, right? And she had to remind us that the reason we can look down on Freud is because we sit on his shoulders. Mm-hmm. And I really was prepared to just make a mockery of Georgette Heyer. And listen, that thing is a is a steel trap. That is structurally, like, there's the stuff about, you know, who is excluded from the text, right? Who is brought up as, like, a cartoonish stereotype, right? But guess what? That stuff happens in present-day historical romance. And present-day contemporaries. Yes. We have read quite a few that, you know, have, make a mockery of Irish people as housekeepers. Um, And we've read books that include historical romance novels that include absolutely no mention of people of color um, or their existence. The problems that existed in Venetia, I am sad to say, are the problems that still exist today in contemporaneous romance publishing. But there was nothing about that book that would not make it wildly popular, in my estimation, if it came out tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And that was shocking to me. And how much I enjoyed it, in spite of my self and my assumptions and how great Richard Armitage you've been telling me this for so long but he's a great reader out louder do I think it makes him a good person I don't know (laughs) (laughs) fair fair absolutely fair but that was my that was my biggest surprise of 2021 and it's like a good surprise and a bad surprise now that I've talked it over yeah for a text that was written in 1958 to feel so contemporaneous like it could have been written in 2021 is both great in the sense that yes Georgette Heyer knows how to structurally write a book but also terrible because like oh man we haven't what is progress then yeah I mean what is progress then is a question that came up all the time with us this past year and I'm thinking specific speaking of 1958 the category romance we read that came out in 1961 that had a conversation about gun control and who should be allowed to have guns 
in public and like or in private and like what is their utility as well as a conversation about the United States staging fake wars uh, in South America in order to exploit resources. It was very upsetting to me that the 1961 category romance was more progressive on gun control than our current debate. Yeah, absolutely. I was horrified by that. Like genuinely, like I'm getting goosebumps remembering how horrified I was about it. Someone pointed out that, you know, Betty White, who recently passed away, they pointed out that, you know, she lived she lived to be 99 years old, a couple days shy of her 100th birthday. And like no writings she did or recording she ever made did she use the n-word she never had any blackface pictures resurface and I'll tell you what they were doing it when she was acting and I think we have this perception this falsity of progress right Mm -hmm. whereas the people who have known have been holding the line for a really long time and I think the volumes turned up and hopefully that goes towards making actual progress Mm -hmm. But it was surprising uh, how contemporaneous all of those old texts felt. The one from the 70s felt like, whoa, something weird is happening. But I think that speaks to the 70s as being like a time of real rupture. And I don't think we like to think about the 70s as a time of real rupture and real progress because it was deeply miserable Mm -hmm. as far as, you know, the gas prices and serial killers and the emergence of the idea of global warming, right? Like, but that's a time when we see like, I don't know if that makes you feel better. Like that's a time, a point at which we see like a truly creative reckoning in a category romance, but it kind of makes me feel better. It makes me feel like at least all of this suffering might be worthwhile (laughs) creatively, artistically. We'll see. (laughs) We'll see. I'm like, I'm both comforted because it feels like sometimes the experience of especially the last two years can feel so singular and so singularly terrible that I I am happy to be reminded that the 70s were a real point of rupture, that free love was over, but the rights that were promised were not yet won. Yeah. It doesn't make me feel better, but it reminds me that I am not alone, and that doesn't make me feel worse. Yeah. Well, it's good. I I think, like, the 70s was a point at which a lot of people realized everything that was promised in the 60s was not going to come to pass. Like, it's not possible because they were using the same systems to try and change the system, right? Right. Like, what is who is Charles Manson if not a super effective patriarch? And right. Or that the backlash would be intense as intense as it was. Right. Like the Phyllis Schlafly's of the world, you know, they were named Phyllis in the 70s and they're named Karen now. Like, yes. Um, And so I I hope like that gave me a lot of clarity. And I think I understand why people need to believe in progress on like an interpersonal level, because you think very differently probably than your grandparents or feel like you think differently than your grandparents, but you still have to love your grandparents. So you have to like come up with this narrative that like some kind of progress has happened. But I think like what reading those romance, those those category romances, specifically the mass market shit from those eras has taught me is that instead of creating a narrative about progress is to like hold two truths and say – A person can be like a a loving mentor, can be a great writer, can be a great director, can have something really interesting to say, 
and also be a terrible person and I don't need to respect or defend that part of them. In fact, I need I can challenge that while still finding some kind of pleasure in my interpersonal relationship with like that text or that work. But also like if we're talking about like texts and works, one of the things we talk about a lot is like there's so much art out there that and so many artists, you can find good art to enjoy by good people. You don't have to cling to um, good art by bad people. Like, you'll still have a rich and fulfilling DVD collection if you put your foot down. Absolutely. Right? Betty White never used the N-word. She's never been dressed in blackface. And she featured... Publicly, at least, <laughs> that we know of. Yeah. Not yet, right? And she featured a black dancer, and it came out either yesterday or today that, like, the studio heads were like, you got to cut this guy. And she's like, he stays. And she cast him even more. And never let him know. He didn't find out until he read her autobiography. Right. And yeah, and so like believe that someone like that coexisted with someone like I feel like it always comes out regularly that Elvis Costello is like a or how about that how about uh one that we I can definitely trace back Morrissey, right? Like <laughs> why would you defend a Morrissey when Betty White exists like why would you expend your energy doing that Mm -hmm. and you can buy his used records and he doesn't get any money so like who the fuck cares right like you can do this we can we can challenge we can do this guys we can do this Um, And so that was disheartening. At times it was disheartening. At times it was heartening on like a personal level. I'm glad I gained that clarity. I'm glad that we read. I'm glad that we did the category romance. I'd like to do that again as a series. I think category actually has a lot to say. I think that it really represents Mm -hmm. that the structure can create a ton of freedom. Because while the 70s and 80s were like a rip roaring time in those categories, the one from the 90s is bonkers terrible in both everything that it says and everything that it thinks it's like ronald reagan and margaret thatcher had a baby in a 155 page book and then just like that baby just like shat all over it like everything about that book sucks yeah everything And it got published. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it got published. Well, is that your – okay, my next question is – what was your biggest no of the year? Was it Tangled Threads by Susan McCarthy? Tangled Threads is certainly very high up there on my nose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it probably is my biggest no because my next one is like, it's there's nothing egregious about it. It's just like ho-hum. So yeah, Tangled Threads definitely takes the number one spot for no for me. What about for you? A Lady's Guide to Mischief and Mayhem. Mm, fuck the police. No one will hurt you like your darlings. And I'm a true crime fan. I'm a, I'm a true crime consumer. I'm a long-term, voracious true crime consumer. That's what I am. And that book laid bare for me all of the problems I have with true crime as a term, like as the category, right? 
that is generally in the cultural zeitgeist. And it also laid bare for me everything that's frustrating me about romance industry now, right? Because this book is marketed as a a romantic comedy, right? Like, I'm sorry, if I see the cartoon cover and there's nothing sensual happening, I'm going to assume I'm looking at a romantic comedy. Not that romantic comedies can't be super sensual, but like that's the assumption I made based on the book cover. And maybe that was wrong, but it was an assumption I made nonetheless, right? And it has this like twee title. And like, it wasn't funny. All of the jokes fell flat. And we've talked about this in the past as well. Like people, like being funny is actually a real skill. Mm -hmm. And like when it's happening, it's not funny, right? Like when people are in a writer's room trying to be funny, they're not just like yucking it up for hours, right? Because you have to think about it. And like if you say something funny, you're not going to (laughs) like – You know, like it takes a long time to feel tickled with yourself for God's sake. Why we are making this this generic expectation that romance novels should be funny to be worthwhile and that you have to make an attempt at a joke in them. Maybe not because you're not funny and you shouldn't write funny romance novels. You know, some of them are funny. Some of them are laugh out loud. Some of them are hilarious. Not this one. But like that's death. Not this no. one. This one, it's funny that you should say it takes you a long time to be tickled with yourself because I think that's actually kind of a, how do I want to say that? I think that's actually like an interesting landscape because I think it doesn't take much to be tickled with yourself if you're not very self-inquisitive <laughs> and that you think you're really funny. And then there's like, oh, and suddenly you like begin to learn the skill of comedy. You're like, oh man, it takes a lot of work to be funny and like getting the right vibe and getting the right joke and getting the delivery. Like those are actual quantifiable skills that take yeah. a long time. And then I think like you you go through the valley of that self-reflection, then you come out on the other side as like a much funnier person versus the person who's like not self-critical. Like I don't I don't want to put like my psychoanalysis on this author, but this text seemed tickled with itself. Yeah. Like it felt like it was punny. And I think you can have fun writing a book, but I think you should have fun with like your setting and your characters. And the setting and the characters felt like shoehorned in. Like it was a hundred percent like a a my favorite murder fan steampunk fan fiction. And although there wasn't anything steampunk about it, I just think it's interesting to choose the Victorian era. But then like which like makes sense like right because J- uh, Jack the Ripper whatever. But also, like, you're going to choose that era and then have everything take place in, like, the lush, verdant, sunny English countryside. Like, it's a brother-sister murder duo and, like, a copaganda to the max. Uh, yeah, it's it's not a very self-inquisitive – it's not a very inquisitive text. It doesn't problematize the things it likes and that makes it hard for me to enjoy and was my biggest no of the year, a real disappointment for me personally. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> it's okay. See, like everything is redeemed because I get to talk about it afterwards. <laughs> what was your other biggest no that was just ho hum? So this is it gets to the surprise that wasn't a good surprise, which was Neon Gods. Everyone was like, it's going to be so hot. It's oh. going to be so steamy. You're not ready. And I was like, I am. Yeah. And then I was like, wait, this is what everyone's t- like, what? Where have y'all been? Like, clearly not in the erotic romance spaces that I barely frequent, but, like, have encountered much steamier books than this. Yeah. So that was one where it's, like, the hype 
got me, which my bad. And then there was the whole deal with Spotify and like the people that they had doing it and like la 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 la. I was like the reading it. Yeah. It's cool that it was available for free. I think that's really cool. And that it was available on Spotify. That was really cool. And I and I do want to see that happen more for romance. I was just like, what the fuck? Like, was it where and then it's like, were people really hyping it or were bots hyping it? Or like, did it like become like the motivation of its own hype, like it became a perpetual motion thing. I don't know because I was like, it was everywhere when it came out. Yeah. My theory stands that it was like a lot of young people who have never bought a romance novel directly from an author's website because that's the only place that would sell it, right? We're like <laughs> going, like getting their hands on Neon Gods and they were like very turned on. And like, you know, it's like the Fifty Shades of Grey thing again where like nothing really sexy happens in that book um, except for communication. And it tells me how starved we are for it. I, I mean, I thought it was a steamy book. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a lot of hype. It was a lot of hype on a particular aspect that doesn't really play. So I, if Katie Roberts is listening to this, that is a challenge. <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure Katie Roberts is listening to this. <laughs> I'm sure all of our authors are listening yeah, to this. All they of definitely them. listen. They want to know their superlative <laughs> for the year. Um, <laughs> God. But we do appreciate our parents uh, who are the actual listeners. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it did. It did come out. It was Neon Gods probably would have been like pretty cool if it hadn't been hyped up so much. But I put there are so many Persephone and Hades things happening right now and about to happen. And I think it's like mythology retelling is like its own romance thing now the thing that is like so i i follow this visual artist this illustrator and she was talking about how um, people of color should remake mythology of um like largely white western mythology to like reenact what was done unto their mythology and she was like so if i were to do that i would say that athena gave medusa snakes for her, her hair in order to protect her and her family from being raped again, right? From that ever happening to them again. And I thought, wow, that's like a really like interesting take and that makes sense and it's clear and concise. Remaking Hades and Persephone as some kind of like consensual, grumpy versus cinnamon roll story, I think is like, if you do it once, like, okay. But the fact that it keeps happening over and over again when um, Hades actually kidnapped a girl child and forced her to be his bride in, like, a not unclear rape metaphor. Like, I feel like we could do better <laughs> if we're going to reimagine that story rather than being like, oh, it wasn't rape. He's just grumpy and people don't like him. Like, that's not a helpful narrative. <laughs> that's not a helpful narrative. I think – the most transformative stuff that I've seen out of the Hades Persephone is like the conversation of rather than I always understood that myth is like Demeter travels the world and blankets it in winter because she's so sad. And like, it's the real story of like 
a mother grieving and like looking desperately for her daughter. Well, and she does like a lot of fucked up things trying to get her daughter back, like burns a baby alive. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like not without my daughter, like taking no prisoners. I will make the entire world winter in my grief. And I always liked that as a story of like how grief is so big and can be physical and I I liked that I always liked that as a kid I thought like Mm -hmm. oh this this feeling is so big it has to envelop the whole world yeah and one of the things that the new Persephone's Hades thing has produced is the story that Demeter is that but because her feelings are so big she's actually like this super controlling mother and that Persephone is trying to break the yoke of a very controlling mother. Yeah. And I think like that's actually like the myth bears that out. And I think that's an interesting way. But it's weird that the villainy of the story has been transferred from the kidnapper to the mother. Yeah. Which like I think there's a lot that we can say there about like misogyny. But yeah. Well, and it's like, look, man, like it is probably not a coincidence that the narrative that was chosen is the one that most closely hews to bodice rippers, which we all like to act like we've moved on from and we're so much better than. And now we have these like particular conversations around consent that it's like, are we or are we just like doing rape apologia for Hades and villainizing the mother. Like, I think we still have, like, we talked about this with shifters. Like, we still have this desire to, like, read about a super, like, dominating, like, alpha mask. You know, as much as we make fun of it in real life, like, this, these kinds of stories get consumed widely. Readily. And, like, any... And I think having it be like, oh, it's a myth retelling and he's not as bad as he is in the real myth feels like an excusable (laughs) way to indulge in that. And Demeter is just uh, a human shield for that. Yeah, she's like a casualty in this retelling, which I think like I'm happy to think more about. Like I'm happy. Retellings. Yeah, in these retellings. Like it isn't, it's shocking to me, but not surprising that the villainy has been transferred to the maternal figure. You know what I mean? Where it's like, if I think about it long enough, I'm not surprised. But like in the thing of it where I'm like, she's a really sad mom who's like doing everything she can to get her baby back. I don't, Hades did the stealing. Anyway, that's like, that was my ho-hum sort of like, I fell victim to hype. Well, well, if that wasn't your sexiest book, what was your sexiest book that we read? Great question. In 2021. And then we'll wrap up with our biggest woes. Sexiest book. Okay. Or sexiest part. It couldn't even be like that the book is like the sexiest, but the part is sexiest. So I already talked about Strange Love, which remains very high for me. And then what's Reckless is the one with the Duke pirate, right? Or is that Deception? Hang on. Okay. That's Deception. Reckless is the one with the painter. I liked deception and like the sexy stuff that the the guy does about like just taking charge and being like I'll take care of it and like their weird like storytelling over brandy with the fire you know that I loved that 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 remained very sexy for me can you talk a little bit more specifically about the scene (laughs) none of the sex scenes in deception were that sexy but the lead up to that stuff was very sexy and I think when we read Deception it was like the pandemic was just keep kept going on and like 
I was very exhausted. Like I had this like mental exhaustion. And so the main character in that book is also mentally exhausted and like doesn't have time for her thoughtful pursuits. And then in sweeps this man in like a low V pirate blouse. And he's like, takes charge of her recalcitrant household and servants and her three male wards. And like, just make sure that the napkins are next to the plates. And he makes sure that like the accounts are running the way that they should. And that suddenly she has money that she needs to pursue her academic and intellectual pursuits. And every night he shows up in her office, which becomes an intellectual boudoir and like regales her with stories. And I'm like, Everything about that was so sexy to me, especially at that time where I was just like, if someone could just do more, I would have more mental space. And that's the thing that I really wanted. And so that depiction of like someone coming in so that this woman could have her creative mental space and like how fucking sexy was that? What about you? What were some of your sexiest parts from 2021? Uh, my sexiest part was the, I think, second sex scene or second part of the first sex scene in Strange Love. And it's similar to that thing with 12 Drummers, where the author has already established to me that I can feel safe with whatever they're going to put on the paper, right? It's not going to jump up and disappoint me, Judith McNaught. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> Judith McNaught, uh, everyone else from that era. And so I was able to like really enjoy something like uh, weird, like I enjoy weird things and to be able to, I think there's something titillating about expanding your imagination, like stretching your imagination. And so then to make that like expanding your imagination sexually and like what it is to have a body. And I think that's so not thinking about sex as something that happens with specific parts, but that sex is something physical that can be shared in a myriad of different ways was like so good and nice. And like she, and the writer does enough to like prepare you to feel all of that Mm -hmm. as you're looking at frilled gills and having like a narrative about sex and sexuality Mm -hmm. that isn't based entirely on genitals and boobies is refreshing and shows what is actually like I think distinguishes romance from like pornography like the sex scenes in romance from something more lascivious is the fact that you can have a scene like that and a perspective like that and it's well done and everybody feels safe and sound the other side of that is the uh voyeurism of the main character in evening star (laughs) (laughs) that was crazy when our female main character our heroine is uh watching our erstwhile hero make love to a sex worker through a one-way mirror that he's not aware of was uh very good (laughs) and shocking and like yet again i'm like i'm talking about how like shocking like strange love is showing me like in the 21st century what a sex scene can be like Uh, that was published in like the 90s and like was like going there yeah and is entirely lascivious (laughs) and talks about the titillation of 
being a voyeur. And yeah, like, it's like why that's sexy. Like it's like you are so gross. Look at how <laughs> gross you are. You're like I am. I'm so gross. I'm just gonna watch. I'm just like it's totally fine. God, that was that was a shocker. That was a true shocker. Yeah, it was great. Um, so I it turns out I like to be both terrified <laughs> and gently rocked. <laughs> All right. What was your weirdest part? What was your weirdest part of a book that you read this year? What stands out as the weirdest of 2021? I mean, yeah, like Evening Star was like, it's, it's not my weirdest, but like it was just genuinely fucking weird. (laughs) Tangled Threads is also just like fucked up that his daughter is of age of his new wife who... She almost dies in the snow in Wales. (laughs) (laughs) like half a mile from the house and like her brother is marrying her stepdaughter like and like everyone in the family is like cool with it like none of that is good yeah it was a it was a year for a lot of brother sister stuff like a lot of like adjacent cest going on um and not just like in books that were published recently like old books (laughs) were doing that what was your weirdest part? Like, I don't, like, all of these had weird parts. <laughs> yeah, they all have weird parts. That's why we love them. Um, but I think my weirdest part, I thought about, I thought about a lot of things. But what I settled on as, like, the most unsettling part for me of any book was, spoiler alert, um, it's insistence on, like, all bodies are beautiful while salivating over and putting the approval of someone who meets classical Western ideas of beauty as the yardstick. It was like a level of cognitive dissonance that I see all the time. Um, Fat women who stipulate that they are worthwhile as fat women because super built men are attracted to them right traditionally handsome men are sexually attracted to them therefore they are worthwhile and it's i see it all the time in like social media in movies in books but i didn't realize i was seeing it all the time until i read spoiler alert and it made me so Mm -hmm. it made me feel so sweaty and it like it made me feel anxious and i was also thinking about the fact that like a lot of like a man who looks like Nicholas Coster Waldo is definitely the type of man that other men find attractive, right? Like men have determined like this is a beautiful man. This is what I want to look like and this is what I want to look at. As opposed to thinking like in the same way, you know, strange love does where it's like this idea of, of beauty is entirely like put on us. And if we think expansively, like we can, we don't have to hold on to those traditional ideas. And so it was weird to me to read a text that was so insistent on resisting those ideas while constantly underpinning them and supporting them and reinforcing them. Yeah, that makes total sense to me. Because it both celebrates the female gaze, but is encompassed and entrapped by the male gaze for both characters, right? Because like the... It thinks it's celebrating the female gaze. Right, but what it is doing is, like, the frame is still there. Yeah, because that external validation piece of, like, a very conventionally attractive person 
is validating your existence. And like, that's the only way that you can be validated by society is like, Ooh. and it makes sense how you got there. Yeah. I, I, you come by it honest. We all do. We all do. But I, I worry about the fact that it's given a platform as like a body positive text. I felt similarly sweaty about Fixer Up. That yeah. that book was published in 2019 and could have just as easily been published in 1955. <laughs> Same like sister swapping, brother sister stuff. Yeah, finger banging your best friend's little sister at her parents' house during a family dinner after they've like after they've invited you to finger bang her <laughs> in the pool house. Basically. And everything about that was just like constantly like revivifying really really gross gender structures yeah it was like i wish i could stop thinking about how him calling her baby girl is infantilizing but everyone around her is constantly infantilizing her and he's actually doing the least to not infantilize her (laughs) yeah and for that to be a book that was popular and produced in 2019 with the cartoon cover with the you know and it it was really given big publishing legs I was I was like oh boy that that definitely proved true this like idea that like slogan like slogan feminism isn't going to get us anywhere because it's like you know romance is always feminist it's like fix her up is not It's genuinely not. A lot of it is not. And like you can still enjoy it, right? But don't tell me it's like part of a feminist praxis. Like you have to enjoy it in spite of your – like you have to reconcile – you have to hold two things to be true if you're going to go down that road. And like like own it. Don't make excuses for it because that's where we get into trouble. And like it also is like disheartening to me because it is one of those classic cases of like – a man not doing very much and getting a lot of credit. And it kind of drives me wild that like in this incredible fantasy world of romance that men are still doing the least and getting away with it. Yeah. Not even getting away with it, like being celebrated for clearing the lowest possible bar, which is treating the female main character like an yeah. agential human being. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And not really. Yeah, like like barely. Just like telling her parents that they should. Yeah. God, no. Uh, Yeah, yeah. Guys, yeah. Gang, everybody, come on. Uh, Enjoy it. It had great sex scenes. Enjoy it. But don't try to build an argument off of it. It will not stand. Sometimes you do things like as a woman and maybe they're not feminist, you know? Choice feminism is baloney i saw someone who was like feminism is getting to do what i want when i want how i want and i was like no that's just being selfish <laughs> like feminine <laughs> or like an adult who lives by themselves like right? feminism is a series of like practices towards creating a society of equality between genders and maybe even abolishing the idea of gender we don't know what's going to work yet. Point is, slogan feminism is not going to get us where we need to go. Sometimes you're just cooking yourself dinner, and sometimes you're just reading a sexy book. Yep. Don't make it your whole – because it's bringing the rest of us. It's People are like, 
getting the wrong idea. People are putting their energy into weird places instead of where it needs to go, which is the fact that, like, we're about to lose our right to have an abortion federally. Like, come on. (laughs) Come on. Bigger things. (laughs) Having said that, romance is a great way to find those truths about the world. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, you've said it a lot in this episode, but you said it a lot last year where it's like, we need to learn how to hold two truths together. Like the problematic truth of the thing, but also the joy of the thing. And I think if if that's going to be our like 2022, not two by two, or 22, both hands, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like two hands, folks. <laughs> two hands. Like they told you 10 and two when you were learning to drive. And yeah. when we're reading romance, it's got to be both hands. Some of them are feminists. Some of them are. Some of them are. Some of them aren't. Some of them have feminist discussions simultaneously with disgusting discussions of patriarchy looking at you evening star where are you gonna go (laughs) yeah yeah it's like you can hold the truth and you can also be like i this is a problem just because something is problematic doesn't mean you're problematic for enjoying it because you have been conditioned your whole life to be here and so like let it rip, you know, if you can get nothing else from it. And I think that's why people think like all romance is feminist. I don't think we can get away with that anymore. I don't think we ever could. I think the idea... Because they wanted us to get joy from our own oppression. They wanted us to get joy from our own oppression. And so a genre that is by and large written by women for women and is explicitly about female pleasure does on its face, without very much reflection, feel both radical and feminist. But like, as soon as you start scratching at it, just scratch, 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 you're like, oh, yeah, wait. We can't paint with that broad a brush, right? Because not, right. if you want to take pleasure in your oppression, like we love alpha dudes. Like there's something in that water that we continue to swim in and it keeps repurposing yeah. itself all over the place. And a romance novel is a very safe place to swim in that water. Yeah. Um, but also be like, I don't want this in real life. Think about what it would be like in real life. Think about what if there was a convention of men with greasy buds cuts called the Alpha Convention. It exists. They use the Lambda <laughs> logo. Like that's happening. And that's because they're also oppressed. You know, God love them. They're idiots. And like, but you know what? You're not an idiot. So you can enjoy something that's that's part of the oppressive weave of society but you don't have to make it part of your voting block and you certainly don't have to make it part of your like day-to-day life right you can close the book and leave it yeah as long as you're thinking about it right because if you start telling yourself this is actually feminist this guy choking her and being a mafioso right calling you start thinking that's yeah if you start thinking that's actual feminism then you might actually start to practice it in your real life and then here we are right (laughs) Perpetuating patriarchy through pleasure. Perpetuating the patriarchy for our own pleasure as opposed to getting it out of our system and moving on. And like clearly the world can have – I believe the children are our future and we will have a world where 
romance really is all feminist because probably everything is and if it's not all feminism it's like intentionally meant to curb that or like address it or show a critique right it's going to be its own little corner like i believe that will be the future that is not the reality we're living in y'all seem to really believe this and really like some of it it's good to just like ask questions be self-reflective both hands (laughs) ask questions both hands self-reflection all right well what's your with all of that in mind what's your biggest woe of the year what book knocked your socks off the furthest I hate to keep bringing up Strange Love, but I feel like I have to keep bringing up Strange Love. It's a, it's a, it's a, it fucking slaps. Yeah, it slaps so fucking hard. It's so good. And like, of all the things that we read this year, I, it's my biggest woe. Like, it's the one that I think about most from last year. It's the one that I recommend the most. I liked a lot of what we read last year. Like, I would also like to, um, based on the conversation that we just had like one last stop I think is part of both of the both the conversation that we just had about like what feminism can and can't be and like those things but also like that book I felt really slapped there was a lot about it aesthetically that was really cool yeah I loved exploring that year in history Mm -hmm. even you know as a side quest yeah that that book was very side questy What about you? What was your biggest woe? Meeting the Huntress by Talia Hibbert is what I chose as my biggest woe. I, speaking of being able to enjoy things that are maybe a little bit problematic, it's like, it's definitely a shifter romance. Um, It holds two truths at the same time. I I picked it out before we even had that conversation. Um, It's laugh out loud funny. It's sexy. It's short. And um, it's it was just so good. And it's like a, a book that I think could be enjoyed by like more hardcore romance readers, right? And uh, people who are brand new. And I think like if you're brand new to romance, I'm starting to come around to this idea. Like you shouldn't read like a straightforward historical. You shouldn't read Bridgerton, right? You shouldn't read a straightforward contemporary, right? You should read one of the weirder ones. <laughs> come into like the, you know, come into the, through the Woody Whisk cellar. Climb in through the strange love moon roof. Go go weirdly because that'll help you to see all of the strange things that constellate <laughs> romance as a genre. All of our pleasures, all of our pains, all of our secrets, um, all of our imaginations. It's all there. I agree. I think that's right. I have also come around to the idea that like if you start the grape nut version of romance, like that's probably not best. I think a lot about like why is romance different from fantasy and why is romance different from sci-fi as like genres, right? Because people take them serious. And I, I've been rewatching Lord of the Rings, the trilogy, and I'm like, mm-hmm. this is silly. Like this is very silly. It's so silly. But also, like, I also rewatched the Lord of the Rings trilogy this past couple of weeks. It's so tender. Men are crying all the time. For all sorts of reasons. Like, the emotions are so big. Like, the music swells are so big. Well, it meant a lot to a lot of men. So that's... It also meant a lot to a lot of women. Like, I, the New York Times actually ran a thing about how it was so big for millennial women. And one of the things that this woman said who was interviewed, she's like, I had never, it never occurred to me that I would have my sexual awakening reading Hobbit porn <laughs> on, like, AO3. Yeah. But Sam and Frodo, like, brought her into her queerness. Yeah. 
And I was like, what a, what a lovely, what a, what a thing to say to the New York Times about Lord of the Rings. But also, yes, like I totally understand, like I was deeply affected by the panoply of male emotion in those films. Uh-huh. And like now thinking about it, like how tender Aragorn is with Boromir and even Boromir with the hobbits and like everything about Faramir with like his dad, just like. <laughs> I I don't think I'd ever had that kind of access to male emotion before and it does definitely feel to me similarly to the what what romance likes to do which is break open like strong male silent types. I might push on that and say I think it meant like I think if it hadn't been the Lord of the Rings for you, it would have been something else. Mm-hmm. I think there are a lot of men who would have had no fucking access point if it hadn't mm-hmm. been Lord of the Rings. That that makes sense to me. Um, but I will say, I think one of the things that define that romance is, you know, stands alone in is that romance inherently doesn't take itself too seriously. And I think that's why for every episode we can talk about a weirdest part. Because something is – no one's going to take you seriously anyway, so you might as well, like, let your freak flag fr- fly, you know? Whereas I think when I read fantasy or I read sci-fi, it takes itself very seriously. Um, so it'll be interesting to explore the crossover texts in those areas more in this coming year. Because Strange Love does not, I don't think, take itself too seriously. It does the exact right amount of world building. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I also think, like, For the Wolf, which isn't explicitly a romance, took itself at times too seriously for how yeah. silly it is. Yeah. I mean, I feel like we're about to witness, or we are currently witnessing a, a change in romance as it, as it grapples for... Cr- I even, even as I'm... Clout? Even, even as I'm saying it, as it, like, grapples for critical attention not a claim necessarily but like space at that table yeah it's really resistant but it wants it so bad and I like I think you and I have long believed that romance can bear critical inquiry well yeah romance predicts everything uh is everything is everywhere because I think yeah I think there's something to the fact that the writers of romance aren't doing it but it's changing right this is way more mainstream Mm-hmm. It's changing. <sighs> Any final thoughts? No, this is really good. This is a wonderful year in review. Thank you. Wonderful year in review. Thanks for coming and joining with me. Um, and we encourage all of you, uh, especially our fellow podcasters and romance reviewers, you know, if you're on Instagram, if you're on Book Talk, take a look back at the books that you featured over the year and think critically, like, why did I do – why am I doing the things I'm doing um, what about these voices? Like, why? Why is my reading list like this? Think about it in terms of diversity of all sorts, not just, you know, racial diversity or sexual preference or anything like, or neurodiversity, although those things are all important to consider. Think about them also in terms of, you know, what does a book have to say? Where is it set? What is the genre? Like, what is it trying to do? Um, and it's always helpful. It, I think it really changed our show for the better when we started <laughs> looking backwards. Yeah, I think it did Every too. once in a while. All right. Uh, with that, uh, loosen your woes. But never your nusses. Mwah! 
Woli guacamole, everyone! Thanks for listening to another episode of Womance. Womance is hosted, produced, and edited by my friend Morgan. And by my friend Isabel. Our logo artwork is by another friend, Mary Reichman. You can find her on Instagram at m.reichman, spelled R-E-I-S-C-H-M-A-N-N. Original music by Nick Gravelin. And our webmistress is Jane Bonzak. They're the best. You're also the best. We so appreciate your support by listening. Please consider taking this to the next level by following, rating, and reviewing. We read every single review. Or even check us out on Patreon. If you'd like more woe in your life, you can connect with us on Instagram at womance and on Twitter where we are at mans underscore woe. Or you can find more episodes and content at womancepodcast.com. If you have an idea or just want to reach out, please email womancemail at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Womance is a part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts to add to your romance collection at frolic.media backslash podcasts. Until next time.